0: Amen. Thanks, Adam. Luke chapter 19, if you want to open up your Bible. While you do that, I want to uh, extend an invitation, but also just kind of make you aware of a couple things. Uh, this This Sunday marks the beginning of Holy Week, and on Friday, we will gather together 6.30 p.m. here for our Good Friday service, which we do every year. We try to... Use that time, provide a little bit more space than we normally would, a little bit more uh, time for just worship and reflection on Jesus' death. And so we invite you to come and participate with, in that with us on Friday. And then Sunday next week, our Easter services, just the same times that we typically uh, use on Sundays. No adjustments this year, so 8 o'clock, 9.45, 11.30, we invite you to come. Uh, and take part in that with us as well. We're, like Adam said, as we enter into this week, uh, we're praying that as a church, we would just be able to sort of still our hearts in adoration of Christ crucified and resurrected. Amen? Amen. Um, If you got your Bible open there, I just kind of want you to take a look at it really quick. We're gonna start in verse 28 this morning, which the heading on your Bible should say something uh, akin to the triumphal entry and every once in a while things work out around here in such a way that it looks like we really knew what we were doing like we laid out this 80 week sermon series over a year ago and we said we are going to nail Palm Sunday in 2022 that is not the way it happened but it did work out and so we're going to we're going to work all the way down to verse 44 today but in order to sort of set that up I uh, I want us to sort of be on the same page about a particular theme, and that theme is peace. In order to understand what we're talking about or what the Bible is talking about when we talk about peace, we also have to be on the same page of what we're talking about when we talk about sin. And so I'm gonna use this mug. This is your life, okay? When we conceptualize sin, most often our kind of mental images are that sin has come into the world and what it's done is it's introduced like a measure of chaos or anxiety. So this is my life and sin is in there. And what sin does is it like stirs everything up and the water goes everywhere. And so peace in that sense would be the return to calm, right? Like for us to experience peace, what we need is for the water to just go back to being tranquil, no waves, Everything would be still and peaceful. The Bible conceptualizes peace as something different because the Bible paints a picture of sin as something different. The Bible does not picture sin as like annoyances that come into life and create waves and stir things up. The Bible pictures sin as something different entirely. The mug is shattered, it is completely broken. The Bible pictures sin not as you need peace in order to restore the tranquility. The Bible pictures sin as you need a whole new mug because everything is broken and it can hold no water. And so peace is wholeness. Peace is completeness. Peace is taking what was broken and putting it back together. So with that sort of in mind, read this passage with me. This is Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the donkey, its owners asked them, why are you untying the donkey? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their clothes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teachers, rebuke your disciples. He answered them, if I tell you, or I tell you, if, I, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it saying, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning chance to come together and to worship, chance to declare all hail King Jesus. God, we thank you for your word and the way it reveals to us who you are and what you've done for us in your son. God, I pray this morning that you would open our hearts, our minds, open our eyes and our ears, that we would see the truth of who Jesus is, that we would be reminded or have our hearts refreshed by the truth of just what he has done for us on the cross, that we would be stirred up to greater affection for him, that we would see him clearly for the first time. God, would your spirit take your word, magnify your son, and draw your people to yourself? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This passage, Jesus entering into Jerusalem, is kind of a mini climax in the Gospel of Luke. And we've done this a few times as we've moved through this series, and just to kind of get like the four big acts, if you will, within the Gospel of Luke squarely in view. And so I want to do that this morning. As we've gone along, you may or may not have noticed, but like the color on the slides and those sorts of things has changed. And it's changed when we've moved into a different act within the gospel of Luke. So that first section there represented by the red manger, that's Jesus' birth and introduction. In the first couple chapters of the gospel of Luke, what jumps off of the page for us is that Jesus is the king who has stepped out of heaven to save God's people from sin. And Luke is just introducing him to his readers as the king. And so in Luke chapter one, verses 30 to 33, we're told an angel says to Mary, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And then in, a little bit later in chapter one, we see this. Because our God's because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And Jesus is born. And these angels appear to a group of shepherds and they say, don't be afraid for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people today in the city of, of David, a savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. Glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to people who he favors. And then after Jesus's birth and things have sort of calmed a little bit, Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple and the priest there says this, now master, that's God, You can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You've prepared it in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. Jesus is the king who stepped out of heaven to save God's people from every tribe, nation, and tongue from sin. And that second little icon, the blue one there, it's a boat on the Sea of Galilee, That's Jesus's early ministry. It takes place kind of in the north, north of Jerusalem, at least in the area of Galilee. And we're supposed to see that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah who fulfills what prophecy foretold. That the Israelite people have been waiting and here's the one that they've been waiting for. And Jesus actually sets it up at the very beginning of that section with his very first sermon. It takes place in his hometown of Nazareth. He gets the scroll of Isaiah. He opens it up in the synagogue and he reads, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. He is the long awaited Messiah who fulfills what the prophets foretold. Then in verse 9:51, Jesus begins this long trek toward Jerusalem, and the bulk of Luke's gospel takes place between Galilee and Jerusalem, between the moment Jesus Luke 9:51, determined to, determine, to journey to Jerusalem to today, this passage where we see where he actually enters into the city. And the whole picture there is that Jesus is determined to go to Jerusalem in order to fulfill his predetermined purpose. And the whole way there, Luke's reminding you that that's where we're headed and Jesus is telling you the reason. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of men, I will be killed, I will suffer many things, I will be resurrected. Jesus is determined to get to Jerusalem to do that. And today we're seeing the passage where he rides into Jerusalem as a willing savior. And the rest of the gospel of Luke is all about that final week where we see Jesus willingly go to the cross, suffer on behalf of God's people. And as Jesus strolls into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, that's what we're celebrating today. We get this striking image of a crowd cheering and rejoicing about Jesus having arrived and Jesus weeping in the middle of it. So the the main point this morning is that Jesus weeps tears of mercy over those who refuse his offer of perfect peace. He weeps tears of mercy over those who refuse his offer of perfect peace. We're just going to sort of track this idea of peace through the passage. What What is happening here as it relates to wholeness or completeness? And what is it that then causes Jesus to... Weep, And all through the passage, there are these very intense juxtapositions that almost seem contradictory to one another. They have this paradoxical relationship where they don't contradict. But it's hard for our minds to wrap around how the two things can exist side by side. And so we're going to kind of see those all the way through the passage. And then figure out what in the world it means for the people of God to experience the wholeness, the completeness, the peace of God. First little bit here. When he has said these things, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem. Jesus enters into the city of peace. That's what the word Jerusalem actually means. We kind of have a context for this because the the city Philadelphia, we understand that's the city of brotherly love that in just the name of the city, you got two Greek words, smashed together, love and brotherhood. That's what Philadelphia is, the city of brotherly love. Well, the city of Jerusalem is two words smashed together, Jeru, pillar. Shalem, the Hebrew word shalom, peace. That's what Jerusalem is. It's the pillar of peace. That's the name of the city. And so like when we talk about Philadelphia and we just kind of subconsciously know that's the city of brotherly love. When Israelites at this time talked about Jerusalem, they just kind of subconsciously knew that's the city of peace, the pillar of peace. Why is it called that? Well, that's where God's presence dwells, his wholeness with his people. That's literally where like, Peace, fullness, completeness, shalom dwells in the temple in Jerusalem. That city is the pillar of peace. Now don't miss this because one of the gravest, vilest, most unjust acts in all of human history is going to take place in the city of peace. Like such brokenness is going to be on display in the crucifixion of Jesus, but why? Because the crushing of the son is going to bring wholeness to God's people in the city of peace that's where this whole thing is going to play out. And so Jesus approaches Jerusalem, the city of peace. What he's really approaching is a moment of just abject darkness and brokenness and injustice. That's going to take place a week from this moment. And as Jesus rides into the city of peace, he rides on an animal of peace, this donkey that he's on. Now, when kings would come to cities in order to conquer them, they would usually come on this giant war horse, and they would ride into the city, and there was an ultimatum. You either just submit now, or all the devastation of war is coming upon you. And the king would ride in on these massive horses. This is just just a display of power. Jesus has walked everywhere in his ministry from the very beginning of it. He's not used any transportation device up to this point, and he chooses this moment to do it in a very intentional way. He rides in on a donkey. That happens in fulfillment of a prophecy from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Rejoice in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king, that's a capital K in the book of Zechariah. Your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious Humble, riding on a donkey. Jesus is sending a message to everyone, to the disciples, to the Pharisees, to the rulers of Rome, the authorities there. He's sending a message to the crowd. He's not coming declaring war, he's coming declaring peace. He's not coming in a show of pomp and circumstance and power and authority and devastation on a war horse. He's coming on a donkey, displaying righteousness and humility. And there's this interesting overlay that's happening here that when you read the passage, you just kind of stop and think about it, is like a striking dichotomy. It's one of these paradoxes. Jesus is sovereign. He's got divine sovereignty. He knows what's happening. He's in control of what's happening. And yet there's all this human agency at play. Jesus is completely in control of what's happening. He says, look, you're gonna go into that city. You're gonna find a colt, a donkey tied up, You're going to untie the donkey. Someone, if they ask you, and they will, why are you untying the donkey? Just tell them that the Lord needs it. And then you get to the end of the passage. As Jesus is weeping, he overlooks the city, and he says, "Ah, this place is going to be destroyed. They're going to surround it, build up ramps to besiege it. They're going to leave no stone on top of another. There's going to be killing and destruction. And yet, there's all this human agency at play. Because the disciples have to go to the place where the donkey is tied up. They've got to get the donkey. Someone genuinely asks, why are you doing that? Well, the Lord needs it. And then in AD 70, Jerusalem is actually going to be destroyed. An army is going to sweep in there. And it's not an army of robots. Like, they go in to destroy the city because they make a choice to go and destroy the city. The Bible paints this picture of divine sovereignty and human agency working hand in hand in a way that our minds can't completely wrap themselves around. We want to either default to one side or the other. God is completely in control of anything and everything, and we don't even actually make decisions, it's a facade, or we are completely in control and God sort of has his hands off and he knows what we're going to choose, but we ultimately choose it. And The biblical picture is that those two things actually exist perfectly together. God is entirely not just knowledgeable, but in control and humanity is entirely responsible for their choices. Both of those things exist right alongside each other. And so there's a lot that's going to happen in the last week of Jesus's life. There are a lot of human choices that are going to take place. Jesus is going to be betrayed by Judas. That's a choice. And yet God is completely in control. Jesus is going to be taken before the Sanhedrin They're going to try him on trumped up charges and send him to Pilate. That's a choice, but God is completely in control. Pilate's gonna do some stuff. Herod's gonna do some stuff. Pilate's gonna do some more stuff. The crowd is gonna do some stuff. Some soldiers are going to beat him and mock him, flog him and strap him to a cross and hoist him up there. And it's all completely under the sovereignty of God. And yet every human choice is one that they're responsible for. That's the picture that scripture paints. It's one of Bible's great mysteries that God is entirely sovereign. Nothing happens outside of his knowledge. Nothing slips by his notice. Nothing is just a complete act of chance and outside of his will. And yet we are free to make decisions, good or evil. We're responsible for our decisions. Those two things fit perfectly together. The cross is an absolute certainty in this moment when Jesus rides into the city. And yet a lot of people are going to make a lot of choices in between now and Jesus' death. And as Jesus rides into the city of peace, on the back of that animal of peace, he's showered with shouts of peace, praises of peace. Notice just a couple things with me here for a moment. The first are some subtle differences between what Luke records and what Matthew and Mark Record of this day. And it's actually the putting together of all three accounts that gives us our like traditional understanding of Palm Sunday. But you'll notice in Luke's account, there was no mention of palms, right? Luke has Jesus riding in on the back of this donkey. Cloaks are set over the donkey. Cloaks are set down on the road. Nobody's laying any palms anywhere. That comes from Matthew and Mark. Does that mean it didn't happen? It just means Luke didn't decide to record it. But Matthew and Mark both say that that was the case. Matthew and Mark have the crowds crying out. Luke records that it's the disciples who are crying out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew and Mark include cries of Hosanna, which means save or save us. Luke records the disciples crying out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. No mention of Hosanna is you put all of that together and that's the traditional picture that we get of Palm Sunday. This triumphant atmosphere where some number of people are proclaiming that here comes the king and they're laying down their cloaks for him. They're laying down and waving palm branches. And it seems like there's this large crowd of people. It doesn't mean all of Jerusalem has come out, but the crowd that's been traveling with Jesus is there and they're shouting out these exclamations about him. But what I really want us to see is this, word peace. Peace in heaven. Glory in the highest heaven. We actually already read this, but when Jesus is born, what do the angels in the field shout? Peace on earth. Like glory in the highest heaven and peace on earth to whom God favors. Like the angels shout, like our picture of that scene in the field outside Bethlehem when Jesus is born is like a chorus of angels and somebody's probably got a harp and it's like they're singing and it's this tranquil thing. The actual verbiage is that these angels appear and they are shouting and they open with, don't be afraid. Like that's gonna calm anybody down. Peace on earth. What do the angels know? The son of the eternal Trinity has just stepped out of heaven and what he's bringing to earth is wholeness, not placid circumstances, not tranquility. He's bringing wholeness and completeness to the brokenness that sin has wrought in the world. And now here comes Jesus into the city of peace on an animal of peace with shouts of peace and they're saying the peace is in heaven. Peace in heaven, glory, glory in the highest heaven. What's that all about? I, I'm not making a statement that the disciples have some sort of like future foreknowledge here, but God is sovereign. Jesus is going to be crucified. He's going to resurrect and he is going to ascend back into heaven. And what is going to get wholeness restored there? Well, Jesus is gonna cry out on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a splitting there that takes place between the eternal relationship between father and son. And he's going to resurrect and ascend into heaven and there will be wholeness again. Peace on earth, the angels say. Peace in heaven, these disciples are crying out. And what's the image that we're left with? Well, if nothing else, we take away that peace is wrapped up entirely in the son. It's all about him. And there's a juxtaposition here, right? Because all of that is happening. There's this clamoring happening around Jesus. And some Pharisees say, hey, rebuke your disciples. Make them stop. And Jesus says, if I were to tell them to be silent, the stones would cry out. You've got these Pharisees with hearts of stone. Make this stop. Calm them down. What are they doing? This is blasphemous. And you've got Jesus saying, if they stop, I could make these praises come from actual stones. And those two things like stand in contrast to one another. And I wanna just offer like a midstream sort of application here. Jesus looks at these Pharisees and he says, I could draw praise from literal rocks. Like if I made my disciples stop the pebbles on the ground here, would cry out in praise. But notice that he will not make hearts of stone. Like he will not war against the Pharisees' will and force them into praise. He won't do that. He won't do that today either. Now, for a follower of Jesus, he will war against your sin. He will cause the spirit within you to make you war against your flesh, but he will not war against your will. No one comes to the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, kicking and screaming, not wanting to, because God drags them against their will to the cross. That's not how it works. God is completely sovereign. We have human agency, but everyone drawn to the grace of God and faith in Jesus runs willingly. He will not war against you and force you into faith. That's not how it works. His grace is compelling. And when his grace compels, we run willingly. And there's some mix of divine sovereignty and human agency in there and nothing is happening outside of his control or slipping past his notice. And yet we are entirely responsible for the choices that we make, including the one to bow before the king. And he will not war against your will and force you into that. So Jesus into the city of peace on an animal of peace there are shouts of peace and he comes to a people longing for peace look at verse 41 As he approached and saw the city he wept for it saying if you knew this day what would bring you peace He's riding down from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem and he can see the city there And he says ah oh, if you knew what would bring you peace That's ultimately what everyone is looking for. Like every single human that's ever been born is trying to figure out in the middle of the brokenness that swirls around us, how do we find peace? Here's the unfortunate part. Typically what we do in our brokenness because we're blinded by it is that we wanna take the broken mug, try to like cobble it together by taking other broken things and shoving it in the gaps as if what we really need to make wholeness, is just get more broken stuff into our broken mess. And if we get the right combination, then everything will be peaceful. But what we're really talking about is calm. We're talking about tranquility. We're talking about a lack of chaos. And if I can just get enough shards of broken things into my pile of broken mess, then everything will suddenly be whole. But what you've ultimately got is like crunchy coffee or something. Because you're just like dumping more broken stuff into that mess, hoping it will ultimately become whole. And Jesus says, oh, if you only knew this day, what would actually make you whole? And he weeps about it. That is as true today as it was in this moment as Jesus rides down on the back of this donkey, overlooking the city in the middle of this massive celebration and he cries. The reality of the brokenness of our world, the shattered wholeness, is that it leaves us in this constant state of discord. And we're searching for what can put everything back together. We want peace inside of us. We want peace around us. We want peace in the world. We want peace in our hearts. We want peace in our minds. We want peace in our relationships. And even those of us who are walking with Jesus oftentimes grasp after broken things as if that's going to make stuff tranquil. Calm, as if what the Bible ultimately pictures are just placid circumstances. If you actually read Scripture, there's no promise of that. In fact, Scripture makes it clear that you submit yourself to the King, you're probably getting more waves, not fewer. But Christ has come to bring wholeness, completeness. And so, The dichotomy here is that in the middle of a celebration, Jesus is weeping. It's like you show up to a surprise party that someone has planned for you and all of your friends are there and you walk in and everybody shouts surprise and they're showering you with like encouragements and affirmations and you're weeping, not because it's so touching, but because you're just genuinely grieved and everybody's like, what in the world is going on here? That's what's happening in this. And the reason for Jesus's weeping is because the disease that he came to heal is going to crush him. It's not going to infect him, but it is going to crush him. And there are some people who will not receive his offer of peace. And so he weeps. He sits on the back of that donkey in the moment of celebration with tears flowing from his eyes. And so Palm Sunday today, even like 2,000 years later, Palm Sunday is a day of celebration. We celebrate Jesus arriving in Jerusalem. We're looking forward to the resurrection like, here's the big moment. It's finally coming. This is where our salvation was won. And in the middle of it, you've got a crying Savior, a weeping Jesus. And the last little bit here is that Jesus is the eternal prince of peace. the City of peace, on an animal of peace, shouts of peace, people who want peace, and here he is, the prince of peace. Verse 43, for the days will come when you and your enemies are on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground. They will not leave one stone on another in your midst. Why? Because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. That's the last thing Jesus says here. I don't know who he says it to. He just, I, I, it's like he's just, he's weeping and it's like he's just speaking over the city of Jerusalem to no one but himself. And he uses this word visit. You did not recognize the time when God visited you. That's intentional in the gospel of Luke. Luke doesn't say you didn't realize the time when God came to you. He doesn't say you didn't realize the time when God appeared to you. He uses this word episcopae. It's only used three times in the gospel of Luke. You've already heard one of them this morning. It was in Luke 1, 78 and 79. Because of God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our peace into the way of peace. Our feet into the way of peace. The second time it's used is in Luke chapter seven. Jesus interacts with a widow, her only son has died. He raises the son to life. And we're told this, Luke seven fifteen and 16. The dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Then fear came over everyone and they glorified God saying a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. And then the third time is here. You did not recognize the time when God visited you. That word, episcopae, has a very specific meaning. It means to come to in order to help, care, aid, or complete. It's like, walk back through those. Jesus is going to visit this earth. Why? To help, aid, take care, or complete it. Jesus raises this young man to life. And the people watching it exclaim, God has come to us to help, care, aid, or complete. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Why? Because they did not realize the time when God came to them to complete, to make whole. He's literally the prince of peace. He's the son, who's, the son who has come to make whole that which is broken, to take care, to aid, to complete. And the people of Jerusalem completely miss it. And so Jesus weeps. And I wanna highlight one more like juxtaposition here because if we step back, if you were here last week or you listened on the podcast, watched online, we looked at this parable that Jesus gives before arriving in Jerusalem. And it ends on this incredibly discordant note. Like if the parable existed in a vacuum, you've got the end of the parable with a king supposed to represent Jesus who says, bring my enemies to me and slaughter them in my presence. And we looked at that through the lens of the cross because that parable doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in a redemptive story. And we said that what's ultimately going to happen in Jerusalem is that the king will be slaughtered for his enemies, not bring his enemies and slaughter them. It's the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. But that parable doesn't exist in a vacuum because this passage comes next. You get Jesus ending that parable with a picture of a king who slaughters his enemies. And the very next thing you see is the king weeping over those who are opposed to him. And so back to back here, you've got a slaughtering king juxtaposed with a weeping Savior. And it's this incredibly beautiful picture. Is Jesus going to ride into Jerusalem and slaughter them? No. He rides into Jerusalem and he weeps. He weeps tears of mercy over those who refuse his offer of perfect peace. And why is he crying? It's not because of the injustice that he's going to suffer. It's not because of the pain and the torture that awaits him. These are not tears that are like, woe is me. I'm so sad about what's to happen, what's to come and what's going to happen to me. He's weeping tears of mercy over a people who do not understand what will ultimately bring them peace. In their sin and in their brokenness, the savior weeps tears of mercy. It's not bring my enemies here and slaughter them in front of me. It is I see my enemies and I weep. Oh, if they just knew what would make them whole if they just knew what would complete them. The sin and the brokenness that Jesus came to heal is ultimately going to send him to his death on the cross. And in healing that disease, he will make wholeness available to the world. And yet some will reject it. And so in the middle of all the celebrating, Jesus weeps tears of mercy over those who refuse his offer of perfect peace. So what do we do with that? We come in on Palm Sunday and we rejoice. And followers of Jesus, why are we rejoicing? Well, we're rejoicing because we know the terms of peace. Like we're rejoicing because we know that the Son rode into Jerusalem, the city of peace, on a donkey of peace, to shouts of peace, to people longing for peace, because he is the prince of peace. Like we rejoice because the son went to the cross where he would be crushed by our sin, broken, shattered into millions of pieces so that you could be made whole. Like that's why we rejoice. And the savior weeps because there are some who will not accept those terms. So picture the the coffee mug. The promise of Jesus is not that he's going to go to the cross and then try to cobble back together your broken coffee mug so that it might hold water. The promise from Jesus is that he goes to the cross so you can be made entirely new, like completely whole. You don't get your broken coffee mug back with a, hey, good luck. You get made entirely new, we're told. And now you're filled up ultimately with the peace, of Christ, right? Jesus and John, like my peace, I give to you. My peace, I leave with you. It's not peace like the world can give where maybe you could get your circumstances calm. It's ultimate wholeness. That's what I give you. A brand new mug that is so much better than calm or placid circumstances, so much better than just tranquility in the world around you. You get made new. He was shattered on your behalf by your sin so that you could be made whole and be given his wholeness. And for just a moment, consider the cost of that. It cost the Prince of Peace everything. He was crushed not by his own sin or by his own brokenness, but all the sin of all humanity from all time. And Isaiah 53 paints it perfectly. He himself bore our sickness, carried our pains, we regard him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace, the punishment was upon him that we might get wholeness. No other broken thing can make us whole. We need to be made entirely new. And so if you've not ever received God's grace for the forgiveness of your sin and you feel something stirring inside of you, run to the Prince of Peace. Run to the cross. There's your wholeness. You can be made new. You can stop grabbing broken stuff and trying to shove it into your life thinking that it will just make the circumstances calm. You can have the Prince of Peace himself. You can have his wholeness that makes you entirely new. And then, what is the big challenge for followers of Jesus in a broken world? It's to try to figure out how to live into and out of that wholeness that we've received. Like, that's the struggle. The world is not getting less broken. Your circumstances are not promised to be calm. The question is, can we learn to let the peace of Christ dwell in us richly? and then live out of that in our broken places. Philippians says, like in all of your anxieties, you come to the Lord in prayer and you will get a peace that surpasses all understanding, a wholeness, and it is in you. Like that's the Holy Spirit and you're in it. That's the picture of salvation. Christ in you and you in Christ. His wholeness in you and you in his wholeness. And no matter what happens in the world around us, the challenge is to figure out how to live out of that wholeness so that we do not need peace dictated by our circumstances because we've been made whole by Jesus. And one of the great gifts the followers of Jesus have to offer the world is that in the middle of all the chaos and all the brokenness and all of the darkness and all of the ugliness that's ultimately going to impact us, we're whole and complete and we stand firm because of the Prince of Peace. Like that is one of the great beauties that followers of Jesus have to offer a broken world. I'm not just hunting for calm circumstances, I've been made whole. I'm complete and nothing that happens around me, though painful and difficult as it might be, can take away my wholeness because I've been made entirely new. That's the gift we've been given. Not calm, not brokenness-free circumstances. Jesus never promised that. But we are made whole and complete. And now we're at rest with the spirit of the king inside of us as we reside in his wholeness and completeness. We're just surrounded by it. And then last, Brian, you guys can come up that wholeness enables us to do one last thing. Because we've been made whole and we've been made complete, as followers of Jesus, we can look at a broken world all around us and not shake our heads or scoff or shake our fists or wag our fingers at broken and lost people. They are no threat to my wholeness. They are no threat to my completeness. They are no threat to the Prince of Peace on the cross. They are no threat to the King of Kings on the throne. And so rather than shake my head or scoff at them, I can weep with the Savior over them. Oh, that they would know what brings the peace. Like You're going to come in here, I hope, next Sunday... And this place is going to be fuller than it is right now because grandma or mom or Aunt Susie says that on Easter we go to church and I do my one hour of due diligence and then I can move along. And this place is, this church and other churches are going to be full of people like that. And if you come at 945, I'm promising you, you're going to be frustrated because they're going to be in your seat. Like we sit here every Sunday and that person beat us here And they're in my seat and the parking lot's crowded and it's hot in here. And during the worship, there was chaos with the kids making noise. And we ought to weep with our Savior, tears of mercy over those who do not know the terms of peace. Like there is something that can make them whole. Something that can make them complete. And it's the Prince of Peace who rode into the city of peace, on an animal of peace, to shouts of peace, for people longing for peace. And he is still that savior who weeps tears of mercy over those who will not accept his terms. And so we can join the savior in weeping over them here in our community and to the ends of the earth rather than thinking, these people are some annoyance. These people are vile and wretched and their brokenness is a threat. No, it's not a threat. Jesus went to the cross to die for them, to extend to them the terms by which they could be made whole and new and complete. And the beauty of this passage, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that God really does love broken people like he truly does. The son weeps over broken people. He goes to the cross for broken people. He hangs there and is crushed by sin for broken people like he really does love them. And then he makes us whole and we can weep alongside him over those who are broken and cry out to a sovereign, saving God that they would see the terms of peace and be drawn to the Prince of Peace, amen? We're gonna sing a song, it's new to us, it's called God Really Loves Us. Like, we're just gonna declare that for our own hearts, declare the truth of that, hallelujah, oh, praise my soul, God really loves us. The Savior weeps tears of mercy over those who would reject his offer of eternal peace. Let's stand up and sing.